Hello and welcome to this episode of Flirtation's Life to Tape. This is a podcast dedicated to classic stories and historical literature from around the world. These episodes will be the audio version of our visual audio series. To view our visual audiobooks, please visit our YouTube channel, Live to Tape, or you can like us on Facebook at facebook.com slash live to tape. Feel free to visit our website, flotations.com, and view the landscape, aerial, and time-lapse photography there. This podcast is presented ad-free, however, we rely on support from our listeners to create this podcast and our extensive artwork collection. Expenses like media hosting, media storage, editing software, and hardware like computers, audio, and photography equipment runs into the thousands. Any donation amount helps, no matter how small or large, is greatly appreciated. Visit flotations.com donations for more information or email donations at flotations.com. Fine art photography is also available for purchase at flotationsstore.com. Prints are made to order and available in large and small formats, including canvas, metallic prints, as well as traditional high-end photographic paper in standard sizes. Votations and this podcast can also be supported through the Podcasting 2.0 method. Using a Podcasting 2.0 application like Sphinx Chat or Podverse, you can stream Satoshis, which is one millionth of a Bitcoin, as you listen to the podcast. You only donate as you listen to the episode, and the amount you set per minute is completely up to you. At this time, 1,844 Satoshis is about $1, and you can choose to stream one Satoshi a minute, or 100, or even 2,000. It's completely up to you. Another way to support this show is through word of mouth. Feel free to tell your friends or family about Flotations live to tape. Feel free to share on social media and support by following the Twitter at Flotations for photographic content and at live to tape for our visual audiobooks and podcast announcements. Thanks for choosing to listen to Flotations live to tape. Let's begin this audiobook. Chapter 1. Her Great Idea Jack Jack, I've had a truly wonderful inspiration, cried Pam as she came dashing down the stairs like a whirlwind. Unfortunately, Barbara, the little maid of all work, was at that moment toiling upwards with a soup tureen and a pile of plates on a tray. She was near the top, too, and very much out of breath. She had no strength to stand against the violent impact, but went down before it, being brought up in a heap at the turn of the stairs, while the tray, turin, and plates went careening to the bottom, accompanied by a stream of soup. Now you've done it, exclaimed Jack, with ominous growl in his voice, as leaning on his stick, he came limping from the kitchen to survey the ruins. Oh, haven't I just, cried Pam in a heartfelt contrition. Then she gasped, whatever will mother say? The afflicted Barbara, who still lay at the bend of the stairway where she had fallen, burst into noisy crying at this. She had been dismissed from her last place for ravages among the crockery, and if she had to leave the house of Mrs. Walsh for a similar cause, where would her character be? Dry up, burst out Jack impatiently. We have too much moisture here already by the looks of it. As he spoke, he hopped aside to let a rivet of soup go past him. Such good soup it had been, too. The savory odors streamed up under his nose, and as he was desperately hungry, the waste was all more exasperating. Just at that moment, the green baize door 
at the top of the stairs opened smartly, and Greg called down, Jack, Mother says don't let Barbara bring up the soup for another ten minutes, because Colonel Seaford has phoned to say you can't be here until then. What luck, exclaimed Pam. Come along, Barbara. We can make a fresh lot of soup in ten minutes, and we can serve it in a salad bowl and porridge plates. Dear me, nothing is ever so bad that it might not be worse. You can't make soup out of nothing, and there is not a teacupful of stock in the house, growled Jack. Wait and see, laughed Pam, as she lightly sprang over the ruin at the bottom of the stairs, dodged down rivets of soup that meandered along the floor, and darted in at the kitchen door. Come along, Barbara. England expects us. If you had done your duty and looked where you were going, the soup would not have been spilled, growled Jack, but Pam was too busy to heed him. Seizing the empty soup saucepan, she half-filled it with hot water from the boiler and set it over the fire. Then she darted to the table where she stood busy stirring, mixing, and pounding and calling all the time for a succession of things which Barbara was quick to supply. There, that will do, I think, she exclaimed in great satisfaction. Corn flour, tomato powder, salt, pepper, a good lot of whatever oyster sauce, burnt sugar, and a dash of shrimp sauce, just by the way of pinkwoodsy. Very nice to look at and interesting to taste. Not very nourishing, perhaps, but that will not matter for once. The hot water was poured on the concoction. The stuff was turned to the saucepan and brought to a boil. Then, ten minutes being up, Pam carried the emergency soup to the dining room herself, while Barbara collected the fragments of broken earthenware and stabbed up the river of soup with a grubby mop. Well, you take the cake, and no mistake about it, in rising to the occasion, admired Jack with a grudging admiration as he limped about the kitchen, getting ready for the fish course and seeing that other things were keeping in a state of readiness. Pam's merry laugh rang out. It is a mercy I can do so much, for it is my fate to always be creating situations that call for dispatch and skill in the managing. Jack looked at her in silent wonder. Somehow he always was wondering at Pam. It was barely more than half an hour by the clock since she had been drowned in tears because of a curt letter from Lady Dobley, who had written to say that as she could not have Miss Walsh when she needed her so much, she had secured another governess. Pam's salary had not been much, but in poverty like theirs, every little counts. There was a doctor's bill for Muriel's illness, with all other bills which had sprung from the same source, while winter was coming on but it was of no use to grouse over things. It did not make them the least better. So he left off speculating about Pam and ordered Barbara to round in fine style for the next 20 minutes. And the courses of dinner went up one by one until all over. When coffee had been taken to the drawing room, Greg and Sid cleared the dining table and then came down to their supper in the breakfast room, which opened out of the kitchen. Pam, who had rushed upstairs to see if Muriel was comfortable asleep, came hurrying back to help in washing up the silver and glasses. Then what is your great idea, asked Jack, who was seated on a high stool at the table and was rapidly polishing the spoons and forks which Pam had washed. She glanced round and saw that the door of the scullery, where Barbara was washing plates and dishes, was a little way open, and darting across the room, closed it softly. Jack, she cried with positive rapture in her tone as she plucked her hands into the soapy water again, Jack, I am going to ask Mother to let me go to Grandfather. You can't go alone. You are only a girl, he exclaimed, dropping a handful of spoons with a clatter. 
because he was so amazed at the daring and audacity of Pam's great idea, she laughed softly. It always amused her to hear Jack talk in this fashion. She was four years older than he was, and although she lacked his steadiness and balance, she knew that she was vastly ahead of him when it came to dealing with an emergency. You are a dear Jack, but you have your limitations. You are quite early Victorian in your ideas of what girls should or should not do, but you have got to widen your outlook a bit more before Mother comes down from the drawing room, because you must back me up in this. We can always influence Mother when we stand solid, and my great idea is for the general good. For instance, Jack had received the fallen spoons and was polishing vigorously. Pam had a good many ideas of one sort or another, but he had a cautious streak and was not going to back her up in any wild scheme just because she wanted him to do so. Grandfather told Mother to send one of us out to him, and he promised to pay a salary. He said one of the children, but he did not mention whether it was a boy or a girl that he would prefer. Pam put out her facts with a calm decision, and Jack nodded approvingly. Very well, you can't go. It will be another month before you can walk without a stick, and when you can, there is your work at Gaze and Granger's waiting for you. Well, until you go back, they are paying you. A mere pittance, half a crown a week, accident insurance, he groaned. If only I had been over sixteen, I could have had the proper state insurance. It is a rotten shame and the grossest injustice. Be quiet and let me talk, Pam lifted an impatient hand to stay the tide of his eloquence sprinkling him with soapy water in the process. You have this pittance and work waiting for you, but I have nothing. You also are twice the help to mother that I am. Don't interrupt. Compliments are not necessary at this juncture. We are out of facts without trimming, and don't forget it. Suppose that you had gone out to grandfather's this month. Mother says the winters in New Brunswick are dreadfully cold. Being a boy, you would naturally have had to work outdoors, and if there is no woman in the house, you would have little comfort when you came in. Now, if I go, the dear little old man can hardly send me out into the forest chopping trees down when the temperature is miles below zero, but I can make him so comfortable in the house that by way of the spring he will be want the lot of us. Query as to that, Jack shook his head and reached for the plate basket to put away his spoon. Oh, but he will. I shall lay myself out to win his heart. Then when he has got so fond of me that he simply can't bear me out of his sight, I shall turn homesick. I shall refuse my food and tell him that I am pining for my family, that I can bear the cruel separation no longer. He will soften towards mother then and write her an imperative letter to sell up and come out to him without a moment's unnecessary delay. Oh, I can imagine it now. Oh, I can manage him. I have no doubt of it at all. I don't think that I have either. If you go straight at it, admitted Jack, who spoke from experience, knowing himself to be weak as water in the hands of Pam when she had really made up her mind to influence him, the question in my mind is whether Mother and he will hit it off comfortably when they live together. She is a mistress here and does as she likes, but it would not be happy for her if the old man took to ordering her around as I do Barbara. Indeed, no, but I can tell you he can be managed. He must be managed for his own goods, she said earnestly. If he is very happy and comfortable, he will not want to be tiresome. Think of how good it will be for Muriel to have a country life for the next few years. Think, too, what it will do for the boys. Greg is growing much too fast, 
He ought to have quiet evenings and to be in bed by eight o'clock, instead of which he and Sid are working hard until after nine on most evenings, waiting at tables and clearing away, qualifying for posts as footmen and butlers, but missing all the free and easy life of boyhood that they ought to have. Jack drew a long breath which ended in a whistle. My word, if you talk to the old man like that, he will be sending for us by the next boat. I will back you up for all I am worth. See if I don't. Three cheers for Pam, the pioneer, the intrepid, and the brave. Of all the great ideas you have ever had, this is the greatest. Pam flushed with pleasure. Jack had the balance and steadiness which she lacked. He was apt to sit in judgment on her, and that sort of thing is rather unbearable as a rule. Her mother was always holding Jack before her eyes as a model to be studied and copied, which of course was more unbearable still, so that the present moment was sweet indeed, compensating for many a bad quarter of an hour which had come before. I must hurry to Muriel now, she said, ten minutes later, when they had discussed the scheme and all its bearings. Be sure you stick by me, Jack, when it comes to arguments, for you know I do not shine there. Oh, I will stick by you. Never fear, he answered in a cheery tone. I would do a good deal to see a way out of this boarding house business. The sewing and grilling down here every night to give those people upstairs a chance to overfeed themselves gets on my nerves. The folks who are so keen on big dinners at eight o'clock at night ought to have to cook for themselves. Then they would soon be cured of the habit. I dare say they would, but think what a crowd of people would suffer from loss of income. Pam laughed as she gave him a bear-like hug by way of showing her gratitude. Think, too, what a slump there would be in the medical business, for Dr. Scott said yesterday that it was the people who ate too much provided the doctors with a living. But Jack only grunted by way of answer, and then, taking his stick, limped out of the scullery to see if Barbara had fastened up for the night. Chapter 2. Business Enterprise Galena Gittins had her hair sewed up tightly in curling pins. Reggie Furness was late in coming to do chores that morning, so he had crept in by way of the milk room door with as little obstination as possible. He had found by experience that it was not wise to attract attention to himself when he was behind time. Directly he noticed the curling pins. His courage revived. The fair Galena was never hard to live with when there was a festivity to four. She was dashing around in such a way that she even failed to notice his silent entrance. He picked up the milk buckets and scurried away to the barn, well pleased at his escape, but actively curious as to the sort of frolic to which Galena was found that day. There was no one dead, nor it can't be a funeral, he muttered, as he tied the white cow's leg to a post to prevent her kicking while he milked. It isn't a wedding either, or else I should have been bound to hear about it. Her aunt has gone to Friedrichsen, so she can't be going there. He was so absorbed in his meditations that he did not notice that the rope had come unfastened until the cow, by an adroit movement, knocked him sprawling. He was used to her pranks by this time, and he contrived to keep the bucket from being kicked over, so his own upset did not count, and as he always pretended to himself that the white cow was a playful creature, instead of, as was actually the case, a bad-tempered animal, his feelings were not roughed by this being rolled over and having his head thumped against a post. When he carried the milk buckets into the little chamber that was scooped out from the side of the hill, 
he heard signs of an unusual bustle in the kitchen, and poking his head cautiously round the post of the door, he was amazed to see a big baking in progress. Is that you, Reggie Furness called the voice of Galena, who was darting here and there, apparently trying to do three things at once. Step lightly, will you? And will you help me here? I want eggs whisked and currants washed, sugar rolled, and a dozen things done all nearly at once. You can't have a sitting-down breakfast this morning, but none of us have had that. You have to be content to feed as you run about. I don't care how I have my breakfast, as long as I do have one, said Reggie, who had got a hold of the whisker and was turning it at great rate, while the eggs churned into yellow foam under its active exertion. Galena laughed at the broadness of the hint, but she had not had six brothers without knowing that boys were the hungriest of creatures under the sun, so she brought him a great wedge of pumpkin pie just to keep him from starving, and promised him some hot cookies as soon as they were out of the oven. The pie was fragrant with spice and black with currant. Reggie was in clover for once in his life. Breakfast, which was part of his wage, consisted in usual way of buckwheat or oatmeal porridge drowned out with skim milk. There was no porridge pot visible this morning, so plainly there was something very unusual on hand. Please, are you going to be married today? He asked, his eyes fairly bulging with curiosity. The ham boiler was on the stove, and it was beginning to bubble while delicious odors filled the kitchen and made their way through the open door. His question was only a wild hazard. He had never heard that Miss Galena had any new views with regards to matrimony, but he guessed that in any case it would please her to be asked, and so he would be the more likely to find out what he wanted to know so badly. He was through with the whisking by now, and Miss Galena had set him rolling sugar. He would not have taken any, of course, being irreproachably honest so far as he understood what honesty meant, but he saw no harm in continually licking his fingers as he drew the sugar in lumps for the rolling pin. It was good. He would have enjoyed rolling sugar all day long. Galena burst into a great laugh of derision, but she was not ill-pleased at the suggestion. Dear me, no, I'm not going to be married yet, though you never can tell what may happen. She lifted her head and tried to look springily, but she was so worn with hard work and much dyspepsia that the attempt was rather a failure. Reggie looked disappointed. If the festivities were not a wedding or a funeral, he did not see what it could be. No church functions were in progress this month, for the Parsons was away on holiday, and it would not have been considered in good taste to have a church frolic in his absence. Galena's eyes sparkled. She was aching for someone to talk things over with. The men were always in a hurry when they came in from the field, and there was not another woman within half a mile of the place. She hesitated and was lost. We are going to have a great frolic tonight. It is only decided late last night. That is why I am so driven with cooking this morning. We are going to have a big surprise party at Old Rack Prevails. You know where he lives? Over on the ridge at Ripple? They say he is a most fearful, disagreeable old man. He lives quite alone and has done so for more years than you have been alive. I have heard he made a vow that no woman should ever enter his house on the account of his only daughter, having run away from him to get married. Don't you expect it will make him sit up when all lot of us come walking in? Suppose he won't let you inside the door, Reggie started at her with bulging eyes. He was thinking of what had happened at his own poor home two winters before, when he and Mose had gone to bed, 
and had been hounded out by a surprise party that threatened to pull the shingles off the roof if they were not admitted. Moses had been furious at the invasion, for the cupboard was empty, the stark poverty of the home had all been laid bare to the laughing, careless crowd who had taken the place by storm. Suppose he can't keep us out, she mocked. I just love surprise parties when there is a spice of mischief in them. When we go to persons and take more food than we could eat in a month and leave it all behind for him and Mrs. White, it is almost as tame as going to church on Sunday or having a missionary meeting and giving money to convert the heathen. But when we go to surprise someone who does not want to see us, why, that is where the fun begins. Reggie nodded in a token of understanding, but he was spared the necessity of a reply by the entrance of Nathan Grittens, the eldest brother to Galena, who ran the farm and the sawmill, all four brothers in between having left New Brunswick for far west when they came to man's estate. All the way to school that morning, Reggie fumed over the injustice of old Rack Prevail. All the way to school that morning, Reggie fumed over the injustice to old Rack Prevail. Enforcing a surprise party, mostly of women, upon him when he had said that no woman should enter his house. Reggie had not had much to do with women since his mother died. He had been only a shaver of five years old then, and he had been dragged up ever since by his stepbrother, Mose Baguette, who owned a long strip of rather unfertile land running parallel with the creek, but separated from the water by Sam Buckle's quarter section of water frontage. All through morning school, Reggie debated the matter with so much absorption that he had no attention to give to mischief and in consequence earned the good conduct mark to his great amazement. Directly school was out and he set off to climb the ridge, not going by the ordinary trail that led past Ripple, but by taking a beeline through the woods and up over the gap where the forest fire had been two years before. He had serious business on hand while his consciousness troubled him a little because he was going to betray the confidence of Galena, he had made up his mind to warn Rack of what was impending, so that the old man should have a chance of doing as he liked about being at home when the visitors came. The day was very hot, although, and it was October. The maple leaves on the ridge were aflame with autumn splendor, and the scarlet of the oaks at Cumberland's Crossing was a sight to see. But Reggie had scant attention for the beauty of nature, for he was in a hurry make the best speed he could, it would be the almost impossible for him to get back to the schoolhouse before afternoon school began, and if he had no satisfactory excuse for being late, he would have the cane. To be late at morning school was a forgivable offense, because of the long distance the scholars had to come and the heaviness of the morning chores at most of the homes, but there was no excuse for being late in afternoon, because no one went home then, and it did not take long to eat the new piece each scholar had brought in his or her school bag. From the top of the ridge to Ripple was easy going. Downhill all the way, Reggie crashed through the undergrowth at great rate. He had no watch but could only guess at the time. Every minute gained would make one stroke of the cane the less, for the rule was one stroke for every minute late, so it was necessary to use dispatch. When he emerged at the clearing in front of the house, he saw the old man doing something to a gun in front of the old chip house door. Quickening his pace, Reggie was making straight toward him, but before he could clamber through the hole in the garden fence, a quavering shout reached him. Now then, stay where you are, boy. If you come a step nearer, I will set the dog at you. 
Rack's aspect was so threatening that Reggie decided to be the best part of Valier to stay where he was, especially as a powerful dog which had been lying on the ground rose at this moment and growled in menacing fashion. I have come to tell you something that you will be glad to know, called Reggie. Tell it then and be off. I don't want a lot of loafers on this premises, growled the old man, and enraged though he was, Reggie's face twitched in a grin of amusement. One small perishing boy had run all the way from the schoolhouse could hardly be described as a lot of loafers. Gritton's folk and a lot of other women are going to have a surprise party here tonight. They are going to bring supper and dance to an accordion afterwards, called out Reggie, in clear tones which carried amazingly in the hot, still air. If he had been able to whisper the information, it would not have seemed so bad, but to be obliged to shout out what in honor he ought to have kept silent about made him so angry that he hated the old man he had come so far to serve. Rack gave a sorrowful, crackling laugh, and the dog growled in sympathy. If the surprise party comes here, it is likely they may find themselves a bit surprised, the old man called back, and then he went on clearing his gun as if no one were there. Ain't you going to give me nothing for coming all this way to tell you? demanded Reggie in a shrill tone of indignation. It was past believing that this disagreeable old man should actually refuse to reward him for all his trouble. I'll give you the stick if you don't clear out of this sharp, the old man retorted with a snarl, and he looked as if he meant it. Reggie was insistent and inclined to clamor for what he deemed his rights, so he burst into angry, noisy abuse after the manner of his kind. Think I'm going to put up with that sort of treatment, do you? A regular old skinflint you are, and no mistake. I hope this surprise party will come, scores of them, and I hope they will dance and dance till your carpets are in rags and they have worn holes in your floors. Here, dog, after him, exclaimed the old man, swinging his hand with an air of exasperation in Reggie's direction, but Reggie was not going to stay on the chance of a mauling. The dog was a big animal, and he was only rather a small boy, so he fled away with the speed of a hunted fox, and the dog, having pursued him to the end of the cleared ground, gave up the chase, returning toward the house in a languid trot, as if the exertion was too much on such a hot day. There was no slacking of Reggie's speed until he was well on his way. Then, as the ascent of the ridge grew steeper, he dropped into a walk. There was a black hate in his heart for the old man who had treated him so badly, and he was meditating all manner of wild and possible schemes for getting better of him as he toiled over the ridge. Then he broke into a trot again where the ground sloped to the schoolhouse. It would be late, he was sure of it, and he would have the cane. He had broken a confidence reposed in him, and he had gained nothing by it. No wonder he was furious. As he turned to enter the school door, as he turned to enter the school door, he shook his fist in an impotent rage at the wooden ridge he had just crossed. Chapter three The Surprise Party Pam stepped off the boat at Hunt's Crossing. There was a curious sense of unreality all about her. She felt as if she was walking in her sleep and half expected to wake presently and find herself back in the top bedroom of the boarding house in London, which she had shared with her mother and Muriel. The forest had been pushed back a little at Hunt's Crossing. There were three wooden houses and several barns grouped near the river, but they all had ragged, unfinished looks which jarred on Pam and forced her to realization of being in a strange land. If she had been merely dreaming, these things would not 
have troubled her. There was no one to meet her, and she had not expected there would be. Her mother, when she agreed to Pam's plan, had told her all about the road from Hunt's Crossing to Ripple. The trail round sharply round past Bond's store, which was the post office, curved round the angle of the hill, and then stretched in a straight line for three miles and a half to Ripple. There were cross trails here and there, but there was no mistake in the way. Pam even felt as if she had been here before when she saw the cluster of houses near the river, the tumbling down barns, and the various trails that converged at the crossing. She went into the store and arranged for her heavy baggage to be kept there until she could send or come for it, then carried her bag, her umbrella, and waterproof. She set her face to the trail. Curious glances followed her as she left the little cluster of houses. It was so rare that a stranger of the softer sex left the riverboats at this point. Men were in plenty who came and went, intent on selling something or looking for something to buy, but a well-dressed girl who arranged for her baggage to be left at the store and then went marching along the forest trails as if she had lived there all her life was indeed something to speculate over. Life moved fairly easily with the people at Hunt's Crossing, so they were able to lean over their front fences and continue their speculations without any serious upset to the day's work. It was late in the afternoon, and the October sunshine had a mellow tinge as if the reflected glories of the crimson and gold of the oak and maple had somehow colored the glow of the sunshine to a warmer tint. Pam burst into o's and ahs of pleasure as she stood on the trail with a springly step and gazed on all the wealth of color with which the forest was painted on that sunny autumn afternoon. Accustomed as her eyes had been to soft neutral tints of London, and as fresh as she was from a week gazing on the gray Atlantic, all this flaming beauty of the woodland affected her senses, making her giddy. For a mile or more she went ahead at brisk pace, but her bag was heavy, her coat was hot, and presently sitting down for a brief rest, she found herself so comfortable that she fell asleep. It was a foolish thing to do, of course, but who can expect fully-fledged wisdom and hoary-haired discretion in a girl of twenty? Pam awoke with a start after a delirious dream of her grandfather's warm welcome at the end of the journey. She thought he was telling her, with tears in his tired eyes, that he was sure she would be the joy of his life and the solace of his lonely days but that he would only know no real happiness until her mother and other children came to live with him also. The glory had faded from the forest, and a cool wind stirred among the rustling leaves. The sun had dropped out of sight, and with a sharp exclamation of dismay, Pam rose to her feet to continue her journey. How idiotic she had been to fall asleep in this fashion when she should have been marching straight on. By the way, in which direction did she require to go? Straight on? But now she was not sure which direction was straight on, or which led back to Hunt's Crossing. If by ill luck she took the wrong way, darkness would overtake her, and she would have to ask for a night's lodging at one of the three houses there. Even if she went forward on the right road, she would still have difficulty in reaching Ripple by the time it grew dark. For now she was finding one foot very sore where her boot had rubbed it. She limped along the trail, she limped along the trail for a few hundred yards, gazing to right and left in perfect fever of anxiety. There had been forest on either side. Cedar, birch, beech, oak, and ash jostled each other or stood singly or in groups, with wide stretches of lesser growth. 
It looked so exactly like the way she had been traversing before she went to sleep. After ten minutes or so, Pam became convinced that she had turned around and was going back the way she had come. Oh, I am in a hopeless muddle, she murmured in a rueful tone, and turning back on her tracks, she limped along as fast as she could go. Darkness dropped so suddenly on the forest that she was not prepared for its coming, and panic seized her in its grips. She could have screamed from sheer terror, but it was of no use to scream if there was no one to hear. Suddenly the sound struck her ear, a sound of singing voices in unison. Whatever could it be, Pam stood motionless in the middle of the trail, straining her ears to listen, while her heart beat so loud that it seemed to stop her from catching the words that were sung. It was an old melody, and presently the words came to her through the clear air of the evening with quite startling distinctness. Mother, rock me in cradle all day. You may lay me down to sleep, my mother dear, but rock me in the cradle all day. Pam had never heard anything like it before. The haunting sweetness of the melody joined to the words made her so fearfully homesick that she had the greatest difficulty to keep from crying like a baby. But the singers were coming nearer, and her position of being lost on a straight trail was quite sufficiently ridiculous without her making herself look more absurd by being found in tears. So she stiffened her back and clenched her fists tightly. Suddenly the singers changed their tune and broke into a rollicking, litting melody. I'm so glad the angels brought the tidings down. I am hunting for a home. You will not get lost in the wilderness hunting for a home. Pam could hear their measured trot of horses now. The party was coming nearer and nearer. They were voices of girls mingling with the deepest tones of men, and sudden waves of confidence surged into her heart, for she knew that she would not be afraid to trust these people. Stop, will you? Please stop. I have lost my way. Her voice sounded strange and shrill in her own ears, and she ran out to the middle of the trail and held up her arms to stop the first wagon. By this time, she had gathered that there were two wagons and that they were very near together. The rising moon sent a pale shaft of light down among the forest trees, falling on Pam, lighting her face with an unearthly and turning her fair hair into a mass of gleaming gold. The horses were startled by the sudden apparition in the track. They stopped short, tried to rear, and veered round would they have bolted but for the firm hand on the lines and the reassuring shouts of the driver in their seat. Whoa there, steady, Tom and Firefly. What possesses you to cut capers like an unbroken colt every time you meet a lady on the trail? A lady, is it? I declare, I thought it was a ghost, cried another voice. A lady, is it? I declare, I thought it was a ghost, cried another voice. What eyes you have, Don. You are a perfect bat to see like that in the dark. The singing came to an abrupt end, and a perfect babble of questions broke out from both wagons. The driver of the first, a young man with broad shoulders and determined manner, jumped down from the high seat, approached Pam, who had retreated to the side of the trail through fear of being run over, and asked her politely, What can we do for you? Have you lost your way? Yes, admitted Pam, and now she was tingling all over with mortification. I am going to Ripple, and I am not sure that I am on the right trail. You are going away from Ripple at this moment, as straight away as possible, said the young man. Then he asked the question which Pam had expected would come. Where have you come from? Excuse my curiosity, but this trail only leads to Ripple, you see, so it is passing wonderful that you failed to find it. The stupidity of the situation struck Pam then. Oh, what an idiot she must have been. How these people would laugh at her. 
but it could not be helped, and so she began laughing at herself. Would you believe it? I was going to ripple from Hunt's Crossing, but the afternoon was hot, and I sat down to rest, then went so fast asleep that when I woke I did not know which was forward and which was back to the river. I went as I thought forward. Then it looked so much like the trail I had been following before that I sat down and turned round to look the other way. Then it got dark, and I was beginning to be frightened, nearly out of my senses, when along you came, and the sound of your singing brought my courage back. Poor little girl, the young man spoke, as if she were about ten years old, and Pam colored hotly with the indignation, because he had so little discernment. I am old enough to take care of myself, she retorted with quite crushing dignity. I do not doubt it, he said frankly, laughing at her now. But his manner was so kind that she did not care. Then the people in the second wagon shouted to know when the first lot were going to get a move on. And the young man said hurriedly, We are going to Ripple. Won't you get up in our wagon and come with us? That is my sister Sophie on the front. See, Sophie Grenson. I am Don Grenson. A tremendous load was lifted from the heart of Pam. She would not have to walk the dark forest trail alone. Thank you. I shall be glad to ride, she answered keeping her voice steady with an effort. Up you get, then. Move along a bit farther, will you, Sophie? There will be room for this young lady between us, if I sit a bit on the side. Ah, steady there. Where have you been raised? It looks as if you don't know how to board a wagon. The young man caught Pam in his arms as she stumbled in climbing, and his quickness saved her from a nasty fall. I can board a motor bus when it is moving, but this is different, she said with a gasp when she was fairly settled between Sophie and Don, and the horses had started forward again. I come from London, and I have never been in the country except for a holiday, and then to set out to walk a forest trail for the first time alone, and to go asleep on the way. What next, I wonder? Don flourished his whip in the air to express all the things he could not put into language, but the horse took it as a hint to go faster, and they tore along at such a pace that Pam was breathless and giddy from being shaken and bumped. Old Rack Prevel will sit up when we come walking in upon him, I guess, said a girl with a loud voice who was sitting at the rear of the wagon. He will sit up still more when he sees the supper we have brought him, replied Galena Gittens, who was sitting just behind Pam. Folks say the old man never has a decent meal because he is too mean to spend money on proper food. Their wretched old skin flint Pam wrenched herself round with a violence which all but upset Sophie Grinson, who was rather cramped for room. It is not fair to talk like that before me, she said explosively. Mr. Rackpreville is my grandfather, and I have come all the way from England to live with him. I don't believe he is so mean, but I am afraid that he is poor and has sent money to pay my passage, so perhaps he has not been able to buy things for himself. Are you Nancy Purville's girl? cried a stout woman who sat on the seat with Galena Gittens, and as she asked the question, she leaned forward and gripped the shoulder of Pam in the friendliest fashion imaginable. I'm a Pamela Walsh, and my mother was Nancy Purville before she married my father, replied Pam with great dignity, and then her shoulder was gripped more heartily than before by the excitable stout woman. Dear, dear, how time flies! I declare it makes me feel quite old to think of Nancy having a grown-up daughter. My dear, we are ever so glad to see you, but I don't think your mother should have let you come all this way alone.
to live with an old man like Rack Burville, who won't have a woman inside his doors. He won't be able to help himself tonight, chuckled the girl with a loud voice. Pam caught her breath in a gasp of dismay. Her mother had written to Ripple to say that Pam was coming instead of Jack, but there had been no time for the answer to that letter. It was the very first time since she had left England that a doubt of her welcome assailed her. Now she was suddenly afraid, and she cowered closer against Sophie Grinson while she wondered what sort of greeting she would get when Ripple was reached. We are going to have a surprise party at your grandfather's house tonight, said Galena Gittens, leaning forward and speaking over the shoulder of Pam in a very friendly fashion. We've got a jolly good supper here in the wagons with us, and there is another wagon coming up from over the ridge. That lot will bring a fiddle and a melody with them, so we shall have some music and be able to dance all night. I just love surprise parties, don't you? I have never been to one, answered Pam. After a brief hesitation, she asked, Will Grandfather like a lot of folks coming along unexpected like this, and to stay all night, too? I guess he won't, broke in the stout woman with a jolly, rollicking laugh. But, my dear, it is the good of many that we have to study in this part of the world, and what would come of the young people if there was no fun going at all. For myself, I'd nearly as soon stay at home all nights now as go racketing around and losing my night rest. But, well, I know it is good for the boys and girls to have someone to mother them a bit at their play, so I don't shy at frolic, even though it takes me a week to get over it. The folks don't have to suffer when we go around surprising them, Mrs. Walsh said Don, who had not spoken for some time, save to shout at the horses. The trail at this part being very difficult at dark, said Don, who had not spoken for some time, save to shout at the horses. The trail at this part being very difficult and dark. Tall trees stood in serried ranks on either side of the way, and their moonlight had no chance at all. We always take about twice as many provisions as we can possibly eat, and if we upset a house a bit, we always put everything straight before we leave. You should see how glad they are to have us at some places. I don't care for a surprise party where the folks like to have us. I would rather go where we are not wanted, broke in the girl with the loud voice, whom the others called Sissy. What fun we did have that time we surprised Mose Baguette, and he would not get up to let us in until we threatened to break down the door. Do you remember that night, Glenna? You had that pink blouse on, and Mose was most insulting in what he said about the way you had dressed up. That is Ripple, Mrs. Walsh. That is Ripple, Miss Walsh. The quiet voice of Don broke in upon Sissy's loud-toned reminiscence, and Pam gave a start of surprise at the dim outline of a big timber house that came into view. It stood in a clearing with a background of lofty trees, and the light of the rising moon fell full upon the long brown door. It looks so different from what I expected, and yet I have known it all my life, said Pam eagerly, and she leaned forward to get a better view. Then she cried out sharply, but there is no one at home, and it looks like a dead house. Don't you think so? Chapter 4. What They Found Don drew his horse up with a jerk and sprang to the ground. The other lot from over the ridge have not got here yet, so we are the first, he remarked cheerfully, then held out his arms to Pam so that she might descend with safety, but she drew back with sudden shyness. You go first, please, and show me the way, she said to Sophie, who laughed and then dropped into strong arms of her brother, 
which was certainly the easiest mode of descent. Come, Miss Walsh, I promise not to drop you, and I don't expect that you are heavier than Sophie. Don had turned to the wagon again, and now Pam had no excuse for holding back, so dropping as she had seen Sophie do, she was speedily standing on the ground by her side, looking at the blank windows of the house that was to be her home. She could not repress a shiver as she thought how angry her grandfather would probably be when he found the sort of company in which she had arrived. Let us go and knock at the door while the others are unloading, suggested Sophie, who seemed to understand Pam's secret fear and was anxious to reassure her. Pam moved forward on unsteady feet. There was a queer sensation all about her that she was walking in a dream. Nothing seemed real, least of all the girl with the kindly face and the quiet voice who stood at her side. Gently encouraging and wholly sympathetic, the outline of the house were vaguely familiar. Mrs. Walsh had talked so often to her children of her childhood home that Pam could never feel strange at Ripple. She had known it at second hand for so long. I wish you would knock, she said in a low voice, shrieking back behind Sophie as they stood before the heavy door. They were quite alone now, for all the others were busy about the wagons, taking out the supper baskets and talking excitedly about something that was missing. What are you afraid of? asked Sophie when she had opened the door with her fist. They stood waiting for it to be opened. Pam shivered, for she was genuinely scared. In the background, a dog was barking in angry protest, but the house itself was absolutely deserted to all appearance. She did not answer Sophie, but remembering that she was in a manner at home whilst these others were only outsiders, she laid her hand on the floor and tried to open it. Of course it was fast, and the other, a little more time spent in knocking at the door, she turned to Sophie asking, What will you do? There does not seem to be anyone at home. The men will find a way to get in. They always do, replied Sophie, laughing softly. Then she called to her brother, Don. Come here. There seems to be no one at home. How will you get in? I will go and see if I can find a way. Don't let the others start beating the door until I have tried what I can do, he said, with a backward wag of his head in the direction of the noisy group by the wagon, who were still wrangling over the problem of a missing basket. Then came quite a long wait, or so it seemed to Pam, who was trying to form little sentences of explanation so that she might appease her grandfather if he should suddenly arrive upon the scene to demand a reason of her arrival with such a turbulent company. Here comes Don, cried Sophie, a step sound inside the house, and there was a noise of a bolt being dragged back. How did you get in? she asked as the heavy door came open, and Don, with a lantern in his hand, appeared on the threshold. The old fellow went away in a hurry, I forgot to shut the pantry window, said Don, laughing as he stood back to let the others enter the house. Then he had the lantern high above his head to show them the way. Pam went in first, and a sudden sense of proprietorship had come to her. It was as if this were her own house, and all the turbulent company outside were her guests. They might not be quite all that she would wish them to be, but she would make the best of them. There was a lamp standing on a small table near the stove, and she turned at once to light it. Don't you think we ought to go over? Don't you think we ought to go over the house to see if he is at home? She asked. He might be ill, you see. I'm sure we ought to do that first before the others come in. So am I, Sophie agreed. Don, do you light the fire in the stove while we are gone? There are kindlings lying in that corner. Come along, 
Miss Walsh. The others will be here directly, so you must take haste. Sophie had taken the lantern from Don, and she handed it to Pam, instinctively taking her place in the rear, for this girl who was a stranger in a strange country moved with assured air of one who was at home. Pam held the lantern high, looking about her with absorbed interest. This was the living room, and the outer door opened right into it, and that door in the corner would lead into the kitchen. She knew it well, for her mother had shown Jack how to draw a plan of the house. The door on the other side led to a sitting room, the best room, which was only used on state occasions, a dreary place, so her mother had said. Beyond it was the bedroom where her grandfather slept, the very room in which her mother had been born. That was where she expected to find her grandfather, if he was in the house. The best room had an unwholesome smell, as of a place never used and never aired. There was no carpet on the floor, but there was a couch, a cabinet, and some chairs, and a table. Even in walking across the room with the lantern in her hand, Pam noticed that the stove was red with rust, and she wondered if there had been a fire there in all the years since her mother had run away from home to get married. At the inner door, she paused and knocked, and then there was no reply, and the door stood ajar. She pushed it open and went in. It was a wide chamber, like the others, and being a corner room, it had windows on two sides. It was even more airless and stuffy than the sitting room. A heap of rugs and mattress on the bed were a sign that someone slept there, while there was a heap of ashes before the stove, which showed that early in the autumn it was the old man had begun having a fire at nights. He was not there. Pam made quite sure of that, even pausing to lift the heap of tumbled rugs on the bed as if she expected to find him tucked away underneath. Sophie came to help her. Then they peered under the bed and in the old press which stood in the corner. He is not here. We must go upstairs, said Pam, who was breathing hard as if she had been running. Is there any upstairs to the house? asked the other. She had not observed the outlines of the house particularly when they arrived, and it was the first time she had ever been to Ripple. Yes, there are three rooms, replied Pam, turning. She led the way back across the dreary sitting room, out the living room, where by this time Don had a fire roaring in the stove. Galena Gittins, the woman named Sissy, and one or two others were busy bringing in the supper baskets, but she took no notice of them. Crossing the floor, she went out by the door on the other side of the stove to the wide kitchen, or out of place once a narrow wooden stair led to three bedrooms in the roof. These were also wide chambers, but only one of them had any furniture. This had been her mother's old room, Pam recognized at the very first glance. There was a big press of red pine which smelled like cedar and was just as good at keeping away moss. There was a little bed with the carved headboard, the work of her great-grandfather, and the table that her great-uncle Zach had carved. There were even some old garments hanging on pegs behind the door, and she wondered if they had hung there ever since her mother went away. What a Rip Van Winkle kind of business it was. Perhaps the room had hardly been entered for twenty years. It smelled stuffy enough. There is no one here, said Sophie softly. She stood just behind Pam and looked about her in wonder. She did not understand how it was that this stranger from across the sea was so at home in this deserted house. No, he is not here, said Pam. He is not in the house unless he is in the cellar. 
We ought to look there at once, before that lot downstairs starts making a noise. Oh, pardon me, I forgot they are your friends, and of course, they mean well. Sophie made a wry face for the unconscious reproach, and the voice of Pam made her wince. Yes, they, we all mean all right, she answered. She hesitated a moment, and then burst out. It would have been rather horrid for you if you had come straight here and found no one at all. Indeed it would, and I am properly grateful down underneath, replied Pam, and then she led the way toward the cellar, while Sam followed behind. The cellar stretched right under the whole length of the house, as is common in New Brunswick, the severity of winter making it essential to have a good storage for that frost cannot touch. But downstairs, the merry crowd had been augmented by the other wagon load of people from over the ridge. These were all presented to Pam in due course, and she found herself thrust whether she would or no into the position of hostess. It was in her to rise to the occasion, and she did it right and royally. Only there was all the time the feeling in her heart that she must search in the cellar before she allowed herself to be drawn into any merrymaking. She slipped away with Sophie, while the others were all busy trying to make the supper table bigger by the addition of boards laid across the back of chairs, and holding her lantern high above her head, she went carefully down the ladder like stairs, while Sophie came close behind. Take care, there should be a very bad place about halfway down, said Pam, who was breathing and little gasps again, for she was tremendously excited. Ah, yes, there it is. Mother has told me that she sprained her ankle over that step at three different times. Don't you wonder what some people are made of to leave necessary things neglected so long? Sophie stumbled and nearly fell and recovered herself with an effort and steadied herself with a hand on Pam's shoulder as she answered with a laugh, Wait until you have lived in Ripple for a year before you pass judgment. Our summers are a fierce rush to do the things that must be done, and in the winter we are more or less torpid. I shall not be torpid, cried Pam in merry defiance. Then she paused and cried out in rapturous delight. As reaching the bottom step, she came into the sight of shells piled with apples, bushels, and bushels of them, some quite enormous in size, some so rosy and tempting to look at that she wanted to stretch out her hand and start eating then and there. Others were green and hard, as if they would not be mellow enough to eat for months to come. What can my grandfather do with so much fruit? She asked in surprise, as the flashing light of her lantern showed shelf after shelf piled with apples, while of pumpkin, squash, and other harder sorts of melons there was a good array. One needs a good lot of provisions to face a winter that is seven months long, replied Sophie, who was also peering about with great interest, for she was of a housewifely turn. But really, for an old man living alone, your grandfather has stored a considerable lot of apples. I suppose he has not lifted his potatoes yet, or we should smell them. The potatoes always went into the inner cellar, so Mom said. Here they are, and what a lot. I shall live on roasted apples and potatoes this winter, I think. They will all be easy to cook, and that will give me time for other things. Do you think I ought to take some of these apples up for the surprise party, or would Grandfather object to me taking free with his property? We have brought apples in plenty, said Sophie. If you are asked out to a surprise party yourself this fall, you might bring along some of those yellow ones over there. I don't think there is another tree 
of that variety in the district. Mother has sent over to buy some every winter since I can remember, and ever so many folks have asked to have scallions from the tree, but Mr. Bravell would neither give nor sell them. Poor grandfather, I'm afraid he is rather disobliging sometimes, Pam murmured with a wistful regret in her tone. When they had thoroughly inspected the cellar, as they had done the rest of the house, they went back to the living room, where the fun was now uproarious. The young men were making coffee, while the girls set the table and the older women unpacked the food. There were even one or two middle-aged men, but Pam noticed that these were with Jew in a corner, where they sat talking quite heedless of the confusion all around them. They were much too tired to care for any in the way of festivities, which entailed any labor, but a chance to exchange opinions with a neighbor and hear a little gossip was an inducement sufficient to bring them a long distance and make them willing to be all night out of bed. Old Rackerville's supply of lamps was limited, but the resourceful surprise party had succeeded in getting a fine illumination notwithstanding. A generous supply of pine knots had been brought along in basket, and these tossed on a fire a few at a time lightened the big room with a vivid flashing glare. There were also several lanterns, and these were hung in the outer kitchen in the dreary best sitting room, and even in the old man's bedroom. This surprise party was not going to do things by halves, and they wanted a room in which to spread themselves. A supply of candles eked out of the lanterns, but these being homemade were not very brilliant, and they gutted fearfully in the liberal droughts. Pam was not allowed to lift a finger or to do anything. She was one of the family, they told her, even though she arrived with the company. Failing her grandfather, she was hostess. Entering into the spirit of things, some of the girls rushed out of doors and gathered great rows of foliage by moonlight. These they wreathed in the back of the pompous armchair and dragged it to the head of the supper table and stalled Pam there in regal estate. Oh, I cannot take the head of the table. It is not my house, she cried. My grandfather might be angry with me if he comes back and found that I am taking his place in such fashion, and it would be dreadful to start with him in that way. Don't fancy he will come back before tomorrow, said Mrs. Morris, a stout woman who had known Pam's mother. It is awkward traveling by forest trails at night, and the moon will soon be down. We mostly stay where the sun down finds us and let traveling wait until daylight comes again. That is what your grandfather is going to do, I expect so you might as well get all the fun you can. We are only young ones, and there is no sense in being dismal when you can have the time of your life. If the old man happens along, we will square him somehow, Miss Walsh. Don't you be afraid, put in Don Grinson, who, having undertaken the work of head coffee maker, was busy at the stove. Pam yielded then, and really it would have been silly to protest. She was excited too, and the whole affair had been taken on the character of an adventure. She permitted herself to be placed in the great chair and let the girls take her hat off and twine a wreath of yellow maple leaves through her hair. And she sat at the head of the long table, a veritable queen of ceremonies. Her face was flushed, her eyes were shining, and she entered into the fun with an abandonment that surprised even herself. The supper was very good, and she was so hungry that she should never have devoured almost any. The supper was very good, and she was so hungry that she could have devoured almost anything. Never, never had she tasted such chicken pie or such delicious cake. They had given her an earthenware plate, cracked, it is true, 
and browned with having been put in the oven, but it was a plate, and as there were only about three others, this was a distinction indeed. Mrs. Morris, sitting at her side, was placidly eating from an old baking tin, while Galena Gritton's farther down the table had a saucepan laid by way of plate. These small drawbacks did but add to the fun. However, the gales of laughter resounded through the wide room, which must have been silent for so many years. Suddenly, Pam felt something pressing up against her, and looking down, she saw the shaggy head of a big dog pressed against her knee, while two wistful eyes looking into hers, and an eager tail thumped the floor. A dog, and such a deer. Where did it come from, she asked, stooping to pat the shaggy head, and then sharing a liberal bit of pie with the hungry animal. It is old Rack's dog, and was going to eat us all when we took our horses into the barn, but a mouthful of food soon brought it to a better frame of mind said a young man, edging a little nearer, for chance of talking to Pam. She was having a triumph in a small way, and the surprise party were feeling that they themselves had had a very charming surprise at Ripple that night, for it is always the unexpected that appeals to people. If it is Grandfather's dog, then it belongs to me in a way, and we must be friends, of course. Pam stooped over the animal again, feeding it morsels from her plate, and doing her best to win the creature's liking. Perhaps if the dog loved her, the old man would also find it easy to care for her. That was how she argued the matter to herself as she sat at the head of the table playing hostess in a house she had never before entered to a company of people she had never before seen. Funny the old man did not take his dog along with him where he has gone. Folks say that he is never without the beast, remarked the young man who had been talking to Pam, and for want of someone better he addressed his remarks to Mrs. Morris. The old man knew his own business best, I guess, rejoined the stout woman tartly. It is likely he left the critter here to guard the place a bit, but it does seem a bit strange to me that the old fellow should have gone out for the night and expecting his granddaughter at any time, as you might say. Now suppose what the situation would have been for that poor girl if we had not taken into our heads to surprise old Rack tonight. I declare it fairly makes my flesh creep to think about it. Then don't think about it, Mr. Morris, said Pam, who had overheard the remark. Grandfather would not have meant to treat me badly, I am sure. Perhaps he has gone even some part of the way to meet me, and by ill fortune we missed each other. The company looked at each other as much as to say that was about the most unlikely thing to have happened, but no one ventured to say so. There was not one present in the room who would have said or done anything to sadden Pam or put any foreboding as to her future into her heart. When supper was over, the food remaining a goodly pile was carefully stacked out of the way, the tables were dragged to one side of the room, and then the fun began. One of the party had brought a fiddle and the other a mandolin, and with these for orchestra, dancing went on great spirits. Sir Roger de Covery was first favorite, and they danced it, over and over until they were fairly tired out and subsided onto chairs and formed to play general post. This entailed so many forfeits and so many hilarities in the playing of them that midnight was long past before anyone even thought of wanting any amusement. Singing was called for then, and chorus after chorus rang out the heavy timbers and ceilings. Pam noticed that it was all sacred music, chorals and anthems, which had been learned at church and which matched with the somber grandeur 
the leagues of leagues of forest surrounding ripple on every side. Won't you sing something, Sophie asked, coming up over Pam, whose face was weary with awe and expression. I can't sing, not by myself, I mean. I am not accomplished, really, though I can play the piano enough to teach young children, Pam answered, thinking of the governess life, which she had left so far behind. Ah, uh, the piano is rather out of it here. The useful instrument is one that can be carried about, like the violin or the mandolin, Sophie said. She went on to tell Pam that so far as she knew, there was only one piano in the township, and that was broken. I shall learn to play the harmonica. I am sure that I could manage it, for I could perform quite credibly with a comb and a piece of paper. Pam laughed at her own small wit, then suddenly grew serious, for the night was wearing, and with the first streak of dawn to light the forest trails, these lively people would be gone, and she would be left alone to face whatever might come. Could you stay with me just until my grandfather comes back? Would it be asking too much? There was such a wistful look in the eyes. She turned to Sophie, as betrayed the heart's shrieking that was behind. I think so, but I will ask Don what he thinks. Mother is not very strong, but I know she will do her best to let me help you. Sophie said she made her way across to Don, who was just going to start making coffee again. A minute of consultation, and she was back by the side of Pam. Don says he is sure that I ought to stay, and that he will drive over for me this afternoon, unless Father happens to have a round in this direction. Father is the township doctor, you know, so he is all over the place, and we never know where he will have to go next. If I stay here with you, we will do the clearing up after the company are gone. That will please them all, because you see, it is proper for them to do it. Chapter 5. The Next Day Don was only faintly creeping through the avenues of the forest when the last wagon, filled with tired merrymakers, drove away from Ripple. The silence which dropped when they had gone was so appalling that Pam turned to Sophie with actual condensation in her eyes. Is it always this deadly quiet after this? She asked, and now it was hard work to keep her voice from quivering. She did not realize that she was worn out with all the excitement she had gone through. You don't think of the quiet when you get used to it, Sophie answered. At least I never think about it. But of course our house is not so quite remote as this. The fact is you are so tired you can hardly stand on your two feet. Suppose you lie down for a little rest before your grandfather comes back, and I will do the cleaning up. As if I should ever dream of letting you work while I take ease, cried Pam in a shocked tone. I'm quite sure that you must be as tired as I am. Only you are made of better stuff, and will not cry about it. Let us do what is necessary as quickly as we can. Then we will just lie down and sleep the worst of it off. I wonder when Grandfather will come back, and what he will say when he finds that I have come. He ought to say how sorry he is that he was not here to give you a welcome, replied Sophie, as she moved to and fro, straightening the furniture, picking up bits of paper, and restoring the room to the condition in which they had found it. The house door stood wide open. Presently they heard the sound of a cow mooing in the barn. There are animals to be fed, and if you are a London girl, you might not know much about milking. Sophie had paused in her work of clearing and was standing still with a frown on her face. She did not know very much about it herself, for in the doctor's household there were always men or boys to do that sort of work. But she was going to help Pam all she could, and if it entailed milking a cow, well, 
She did not intend to be beaten at the business. She had seen cows milked often enough. The operation looked fairly easy, and she was not afraid of the animals. I know that milk comes from cows and coconuts, and that is about all, said Pam, shrugging her shoulders as she realized the extent of her ignorance. Come, and have your first lesson in milking, then. Sophie caught up with the cleanest bucket she could find and tied a towel over her best frock. We may have to feed pigs if there are any in the barn. If I had thought about the livestock, I should certainly have asked one of the menfolk to stay and see us through with the morning chores. As it is, we must just do the best we can until your grandfather comes home again. You never know what you can do until you try, exclaimed Pam, as she too tied a towel over her frock in imitation of Sophie. The two stepped out into the keen, crisp air of morning and went across the grass, which sparkled like frost to the barn. They were closely followed by the dog. The creature had apparently decided that Pam was one of the family and meant to treat her accordingly. There were pigs and poultry to be fed. There was a cow to be milked and turned into a little padlock, which sloped like a wedge into the forest. There were half a score of sheep in the padlock also, but Sophie said that these would not need feeding, as they were quite able to get their own living. When the chores were all done, Pam went back to the house feeling as if her education had taken a great strides since the previous day, and she envied the ease with which Sophie tackled all the mysteries of milking and feeding. The two were just deciding that now the chores were done, they were free to lie down, and take a rest, when from the open door they caught the sound of horses approaching. A moment later, two men in police uniforms rode up to the front of the house and dismounted. The police, cried Sophie, and her face went as white as her blouse. Courage, Pam, I'm afraid something must have happened to your grandfather. Pam caught her breath in a little sobering gasp and clung to Sophie as the men strode up and dismounted before the door of the house. Is Mr. Purple at home? demanded the elder of the two, and at the question Pam's courage instantly rose, for of course if the old man had been found injured or dead, the police would not ask if he were at home. Putting Sophie gently in the background, Pam came forward, flushing a little as she looked into the strong, weather-beaten face of the policeman. Her voice was quite steady as she answered, My grandfather is not at home just now, and we do not know when he will be back but we are expecting him at any minute. Is Mr. Purville your grandfather? I did not know he had any relatives, said the officer, and Pam noticed with exceeding dismay that he looked as if he were sorry for her. Mr. Purville has a daughter, my mother, who lives in England, and I have come from there to live with my grandfather and take care of him, she said. Now there was defiance in her tone, for she was telling herself that she did not want this man's pity. Why should people pity her for coming to live with her grandfather? It was horrid. Moreover, it was a slur on his character, and because blood is thicker than any water, every instinct of affection and defense of which Pam was capable railed to champion the old man. The officer nodded. What time did Mr. Provo leave here yesterday? he asked. Then, suddenly recognizing Sophie, who had remained in the background where Pam had thrust her, he said, Good morning, Miss Grinson. I'm afraid we worked the doctor rather hard last night. Was father called out last night? cried Sophie in dismay. Oh, I am sorry for mother, 
for Don and I were both away. I do hate for her to be left alone like that. What time was Father called? Between seven and eight o'clock. He was called to attend to Sam Buckle, whose wife had found him lying near the fence that divides his quarter section from Ripple. He was most fearfully battered, but just alive. I fear there's not much hope in his recovery. He is so badly knocked about. Oh dear, oh dear, how truly dreadful, gasped Sophie and Pam, whose senses were by this time quite abnormally acute, noticed that she turned a glance full of pity upon herself. What time did Mr. Purville leave here yesterday, demanded the officer, turning to Pam once more, and now his voice had a more perpetuary ring. I do not know. He was not here when we came last night, she faltered, a chill of dismay creeping over her, and she wondered why Sophie was so distressed and why she so carefully averted her face. What time did you come? asked the officer sharply. This time it was Sophie who answered. It must have been about half an hour, perhaps three quarters after sundown. We came for a surprise party when we were in two wagons coming along the trail when we met Miss Walsh, who, in walking here from Hunt's Crossing, had lost her way. We took her into our wagon and brought her along with us. We found the house deserted and stayed all night enjoying ourselves. When the others went at dawn, I remained with Miss Walsh, who is a stranger and a city girl, so she would have been hard put to do it alone. That's all we know. Can you remain here with Miss Walsh, Miss Grinson? I will tell your father you are here. Oh yes, I will stay, of course. I cannot leave Miss Walsh alone, exclaimed Sophie, and there was such a thrill in her tone that Pam's face bleached with sudden terror. What was the hidden meaning of this compassion, and what had Sam Buckle's accident to do with her grandfather? But she could not ask the officer. Indeed, she had no chance. Staying only to give a few instructions to Sophie, and saying that he would probably look around that way later in the day, the officer rode away, accompanied by his companion, and the silence settled down again. All desire to sleep seemed to have vanished from both girls. Directly they were alone. Pam turned to Sophie. Why did the man seem to pity me so much? Why should he come here to know where Grandfather is, she demanded. Sophie put her hand up in protest. It may be nothing, of course, but when such things happen, people always jump to conclusions. Your grandfather and Sam Buckle have quarreled about that fence since I was a small girl. As often as Sam has put it up, your grandfather has broken it down. Maybe Sam had been putting the fence up before he was found so badly hurt. A long moment of silence passed. Pamela was staring at Sophie with dilated eyes and such a feeling of terror in her heart that she never experienced before. Then, finally, she found her tongue. Do you mean to tell me, she asked, that you think Grandfather injured that poor man so dreadfully? Sophie put her arms around Pam in protecting wise, and her voice was kind and soothing when she spoke. Dear, she said, Mr. Purvo was very likely nowhere near the place when Sam Buckle was found, and when he comes back, he will be able to tell people where he has been. But until then, you have this hard thing to bear, and you will have to be as brave as ever you can. Suppose he never comes back, Pam shuddered violently, and then hid her face in her hands, feeling that the trouble was really more than she could bear. He will surely come back, unless something has happened to him, said Sophie soothingly. Then she bent over Pam's bowed head 
and comforted her as best she could. She succeeded so well that presently Pam suffered herself to be persuaded into lying down. She promptly fell asleep and then lay wrapped in a profound slumber while the hours of the hot sunny noon came and passed. Sophie slept too, but fitfully. There was a sense of responsibility on her that she keep awake and alert. The house door was open, and the big dogs slumbered on the threshold. The creature seemed to share Sophie's wakefulness, for it kept lifting an easy head. Once or twice it growled, although apparently there was nothing anywhere near to growl at, except the chipmunks darting to and fro, busy in the collection of their winter stores of nuts. Then, far away along the trail, from the westward came the faint beat of horse hooves. Immediately the dog rose to its feet and stood growling, while Sophie, who had been drifting into a deeper slumber, also rose and rubbed her eyes to get the sleepiness out of them. Pam, she called softly. Pam, dear, there is someone coming. You had better wake up. But Pam was so sound asleep that it was hard work to rouse her. The horseman was very near indeed. The horseman was very near indeed before she had come to a real understanding of what Sophie was saying. Then she stood for some seconds, swaying to and fro, more asleep than awake. Run and dip your face in the bucket. You will feel better then, urged Sophie. And Pam moved slowly away, found the bucket of water and coarse towel, dipped her face and rubbed it vigorously. At once began to feel better. Why, it's father, Sophie fairly shouted with delight. As a gray-haired man mounted on a powerful black horse rode into the view and lifted his whip in salutation, he rode up to the doorstep, slid from his horse, and Sophie rushed into his arms. The police told me that I should find you here, so I rode around this way, said Dr. Glinson, as he held his daughter with one hand and lifted his hat to Pam with the other. Is this Miss Walsh, of whom I have been hearing? I'm very pleased to meet you, but I am real sorry that you should have been pitchforked, as it were, into such a peak of trouble, my dear. I have heard of your mother very often, quite the belle of these parts she was, I should imagine, but more than a bit headstrong. Do you take after her? I don't know, answered Pam, a little dubious, for she thought the doctor was making fun of her. I am not so wise as my mother and I am always getting into muddles. So did she, according to all the accounts, so doubtless you are a chip off the old block, he said with a laugh. Then he asked if Rock Purvel had come back. No, we have seen nothing of him, Pam replied, and Sophie immediately asked how Sam Buckle was. He is very bad indeed, the doctor's tone was curt, a sure sign, as Sophie knew, that there was not much hope. The doctor simply hated having his patients die, and he always behaved as if it were a personal affront when they showed signs of slipping out of life. Has he said anything about about who hurt him? asked Pam. She was determined to know all there was to be known, as she feared they would hide things from her unless she asked outright. He has not said much of anything that we can understand, except to murmur over and over again, It is his right. It is his right, said the doctor, and Pam suddenly felt a great sinking of heart, for why should the injured man say words like those unless he were living over again the quarrel with his neighbor? He is such 
A fearfully disagreeable man, exclaimed Sophie, as if she read the thought in the heart of Pam and would give her comfort if she could. I never knew anyone who really liked Mr. Buckle. Even his own wife admits he is a dreadfully hard man to live with. Father, you will never get your money for attending him. He will say that he did not call you himself, and so there is no obligation to pay you. That was how he served you the time the tree fell on him and nearly killed him. Didn't you remember it? Some people are that way, said the doctor, but I guess that I shall be no poorer in the long run for doing my duty by my fellow creatures. Would you two like Don to come and stay the night here with you? It is a lonesome place for two girls. We shall not mind, I think, put in Sophie hastily. She was thinking of her mother and how Mrs. Granson hated to be left at home at night with the younger children only. Oh no, we shall not mind, cried Pam, who understood perfectly the reason why Sophie did not want Don to come. She, for her own part, was anxious to get used to living alone at Ripple. If her grandfather failed to come back, she would have to do as best she could until her family came out of England to live with her. So it was just as well that she get used to things. We have the dog, and there are two guns in the sitting room. That is one each, and I don't think we need more than that. If you take my advice, you will leave the guns severely alone, broke in the doctor hastily. There is nothing so dangerous as firearms in the hands of people who know nothing about them. We don't want any more tragedies in the neighborhood just now. Keep your mind easy, Dad, said Sophie with a laugh. The guns are here right enough, but so far as I've been able to find, there is not a dust of powder or any shot on the place. Hush, don't talk of it, cried Pam, holding up a finger in warning. All the time, no one knows that we have no ammunition. The guns will serve their purpose. If we pointed the things at any intruder, he would be properly scared, of course, and we should be in no danger, so it would be quite right. You will do, said the doctor heartily, patting Pam on the shoulder, as if she were a little schoolgirl. Now I must go, but I will look along tomorrow and let you know how Sam Buckle is getting on. Have you got enough clothes, Sophie? Would you like Don to bring some over for you this evening? I have nothing but what I have on, and this is my best frock, she answered in a rueful tone, for her best frock had to last a long time and this was only about the third time of wearing that one. I would spend the time I am here in helping Pam to clean this house. I would spend the time I am here helping Pam to clean this house down. Very needful work, too. But what can one do in a best frock? I will ask your mother to put something in a bag for you. Then Don shall ride over with them, said the doctor, who was in a hurry to mount and ride away for he was needed in another direction. Sophie, I am haunted by the thought that poor grandfather may have met with an accident somewhere, out in the woods or the fields, said Pam, when the last echoes of the doctor's horse had died away. Could we not go and look to see if we can find him? We might, but it would be awkward if he might come back while we are away, answered Sophie. We will leave a paper here on the table to say that we have gone to look for him and we can shut the dog indoors to take care of the place. Pam rummaged a pencil and a piece of paper from her bag, 
and writing her message, she left it lying in a prominent place on the table, with a blue mug standing on the edge of the paper to keep it from being blown away by any draft from the door. The dog was coaxed in and left to guard the place, and then the two set forth on the quest. Sophie had never been at Ripple before. Pam also was a stranger in a sense, and yet she knew so much more of the place from hearsay as to seem quite at home. We will go right around the cleared land first, she said to Sophie, who had naturally fallen into second place and was following Pam's lead. There does not seem to be much cleared land, Sophie remarked, gazing around at the crowning forest trees. Here and there a little field had been made. Here and there a little field had been made, but even in these great stumps were still standing. We will go around all the fields first, then we will search in the forest. A little sob came up in Pam's throat as she added, I must find him somehow, the poor lonely old man. Chapter 6 Where Has He Gone? It was quite late in the afternoon when the two girls reached the house again. They were both of them tired out, for the day was fiercely hot. They had come up no trace of the old man, but one thing they had made quite certain. But one thing they had made quite certain. He was not lying in a dying or dead condition in any of his fields, which was, as Pam said, a comfort of sort. They heard the dog barking wildly as they reached the house, and a man was turning away from the door as if he had been trying to get admission, and had failed. Who is that? cried Pam. At the first sight of the man, she had jumped to the conclusion that it was her grandfather, but a second glance had shown that this man was young, or comparatively young. It is Mose Baguette, Sophie whispered hurriedly, and there was so much disapproval in her tone that Pam gathered the arrival was something of a detrimental. And indeed he looked it, from the torn brim of his weather-beaten hat to the burst boots on his feet. Good afternoon, said Pam politely. She would have supposed the man to be a tramp. Only her companion knew his name. And so far as she knew, tramps had no names. Or if they had, no one knew them. To her surprise, the man swept off his ragged hat with a flourish, and he spoke like an educated man when he returned her greeting and asked if Mr. Rackperville was at home. Sam's face clouded. She had hoped that the man had come to give her news of her grandfather, and here he was asking where he was, just like all the other folks. She would have poured out the story of the long search that afternoon, only Sophie's hand dropped with a warning touch on her arm, and instead of being confidential, she merely said, I do not think that he has come back yet. If you will wait a moment, I will go into the house and see. The man nodded, then leaned against the fence, very much at ease, while Pam, with Sophie at her side, walked to the door of the house and opened it. But with a howl of rage, the dog burst out, but seeing it was the two girls who were there, the creature at once mended its manner. The growl died in its throat, and it came to fawn upon them with every appearance of joyfulness. Then, catching the sight of the shabby figure leaning on the fence, it began growling again, and would have dashed away to do the man a serious injury, 
Only Pam caught it round the neck and held it fast. One glance into the room showed her that it was just as they had left it. The paper still lay on the table. No one had been there, and the old man had not returned. My grandfather has not come home yet. Is there any message you would like to leave for him? She asked, raising her voice a little so that it might reach the man who leaned against the fence. The dog still struggled in her grasp, being plainly anxious to rend the man, if only it could reach him. Well, no, I can't say that I have, he answered. As he spoke, he drew himself erect from his leaning posture, and there was so much relief in his face that both the girls noticed it and wondered, perhaps I shall meet him at the corner in a day or two, or I may be round this way again soon. It ain't no sorts of consequence. Good afternoon. Didn't you think he seemed very glad to find Grandfather was not at home? Pam said, turning to Sophie as the retreating figure of Moe's Purgat was hid by the winding of the trail. She was still gripping the dog, and that sagacious beast was being nearly choked with its own growls. Plainly, the man did not appeal to the dog, or perhaps the wise animal had some past grudge against him. Yes, I think he was waiting to see if Mr. Perel was only an excuse. It was a good thing we left the dog shut in the house, or we might have found this place had been ransacked while we were away. Moose Brigade has not much of a reputation, though folks do say he is very kind to his half-brother, Reggie Furness. A man would have to be very bad indeed if he had no good points, remarked Pam, as the two turned into the house. Then she asked, do you suppose that there would be anything here worth stealing? Not by the looks of the place, said Sophie, gazing around the wide, bare room. The solid furniture was mostly homemade, very clumsy, and only worth firewood price, which, in that part of the world, would not be worth consideration of household plenishing of more movable sort, such as plate, glass, and cutlery. There was almost nothing, in fact. It was the most hopeless wilderness from the point of view of a burglar that could be imagined, but most Paget might have heard that your grandfather was not at home and just so happened round to see if there were any money to be picked up. When a man lives in the fashion Mr. Perel has done, people are apt to think that there must be money hidden somewhere close at hand and to be had for the finding, and it is these people who find it almost impossible to believe that it is poverty and not miserliness which accounts for the barren look of things. Pam nodded and was conscious of some secret sinking in her heart. Sophie had spoken of the old man's poverty by which way of reassuring Pam, who might have been afraid to be compelled to guard the secret hordes of a miser. Besides, everyone believed that Rack Perel was very poor, and even in the wilderness people can make a very fair guess at the business of their neighbors. If Pam's grandfather were so poor, it would be madly impractical for her mother to give up the London boarding house and come to old New Brunswick. But Pam was longing for her family, and feeling that she could never be really happy while the wide Atlantic rolled between herself and them. The two girls did the evening chores between them. Only tonight it was Pam who sat on the stool and milked the cow, under the able tuition of Sophie, whose best frock was still the bearer to happiness and work, 
Pam had to learn, however, and there was no time like the present, for without doubt Sophie was more a patient teacher than the old man would be when he came back, and Pam made up her mind to abide as much information as was possible in the time. The pigs and the poultry had fed themselves with the harvest of the field and the forest, but they had to be shut up because of the nocturnal marauders whom a chicken or even a small poker would not come amiss. We are all farmers, more or less, exclaimed Sophie, when Pam openly wondered at her cleverness and the extent of her knowledge. That is to say, there is land under cultivation around most of the houses, and so we all grow our own milk and butter, and rear our own pigs and poultry. I feel so dreadfully ignorant now that I am here, for the sort of knowledge I possess seems of no use at all, said Pam, who had even to be instructed in the art of lighting a fire with a back stick. She had never seen a cooking stove in such a pattern before, and she would have been very much at a loss in her new surroundings, had it not been for Sophie. You will soon pick up the ways of daily living that are most suited to this part of the world, Sophie said in a comforting tone. Then the two proceeded to set supper. The food left over from the surprise party would keep them supplied with provisions for several days to come, which was just as well for a house more bare of things to eat it would be hard to imagine. There was no tea, no coffee, only a little dust of sugar screwed up in a grimy paper bag, and a little meal in a tub. Pam was ready to cry, thinking that her grandfather must have been on the brink of starvation. Sophie reminded her of the cow and pointed out that supposing he lived on new milk with a meal of porridge, he would even be better nourished than people who had tea coffee, and all sorts of groceries. Poor old man, wailed Pam, as she inspected the bare house. I feel as if I could nearly break my heart over him. But if he comes back and it is fearfully hard to live with, then I shall feel like breaking it from another standpoint altogether. Just so, and neither way will do any good. It is so much better to keep cheerful, said Sophie, who was of a very literal turn of mind. Here comes Don with some garments for me. Shall we ask him to stay for supper, or do you think your grandfather would object? Time enough to think about that when the dear old man shows up. Meanwhile, we could not be so inhuman as to let anyone go away unfed. Bring your brother in, and we shall feed him on the chicken pie and spice cake. What a good thing it is for me that the surprise party had so much liberal ideas with regard to food. Pam whisked around to find another plate as she spoke, but she left Sophie to go and invite the visitor in to supper. Don was looking very serious. He muttered to Sophie in that moment of meeting that it was to be hoped old Rack would not turn up in the township just now, for the people were ready to rise and slay him because of the manner in which Sam Buckle had been knocked about. But they are not sure, are they, that Mr. Prevail did it? gasped Sophie with a quick backward glance to make certain that Pam was nowhere within earshot. Don shrugged his broad shoulders. Who else was there to do it? The two were known to be amenities. Sam Buckle keeps muttering that it was his right, and everyone knows he always declared that it was his right to put the fence just there. 
Sam Buckle is such a disagreeable old man that I cannot feel he is worth much pity, remarked Sophie with a scornful tilt of her nose as she laid her hands on the bag of clothes which her brother had brought for her. I don't feel any for him, said Don quickly, nor for old Rack either. The pair are just about amenable as a couple of old bull moose, and there is nothing for it but to let them fight to a finish that I can see. The one that I am sorry for is that nice little girl in the yonder, and whatever her mother could have been thinking about to let her come so far with no one to take care of her is more than I can imagine. Oh, Pam can take care of herself. Don't you fret. She might be a Canadian, by the way. She takes hold of life, and she does not seem to be afraid of anything except the old mother pig, and anyone might be forgiven for being a bit scared at fancying her. She looks so very fierce. Sophie was leading the way into the house as she spoke and looking back over her shoulder at her brother. She did not remember having seen Don look so grave before, but she decided that gravity certainly became him, for it gave him a dignity which was quite new to him. They were very merry at supper that night, despite the cloud which overhung the house. Sophie had carried her bag upstairs and had slipped into a working frock. With her mind at ease about her clothes, her spirits had mounted at once. She made little jokes and went off into bursts of laughter about anything or nothing in a fashion which proved so infectious that the other two were steadily laughing also. Directly supper was over, Don rose to go, not having been in bed on the previous night and having been hard at work all day, he was so sleepy that he could hardly keep his eyes open. Sophie would besought him to lie down on the settle in the living room and to have his sleep out there, but she was so concerned that her mother should not be alone another night that she could not even suggest him remaining at Ripple. Where are you two going to sleep tonight, he asked, just as he was going to mount his horse. In one of the upstairs rooms, we have had the beds out in the sun all day, said Sophie, and there was in her mind a swift wonder at his concern. That is right. Look here, sis. If there is a bolt to the stair door, mind you shoot it when you go upstairs. I don't, and don't come down in the night, whatever you may hear. I'm not afraid that anyone could harm either of you if you keep out of the way, that is. But I should not be surprised if someone tried a bit of burglaring on here, for there is plenty of people silly enough to think that old Rack was a miser and not so bedrock poor as he looked. We won't come down, I promise you, said Sophie. Then she added with a merry laugh, not even if another surprise party happens along the way and dances all night to the strains of a cornet or flute. Oh, I say, I wouldn't. It would be weird. I think it would, replied Don, and bothered though he was by the lonely condition of the two, he could not forbear a chuckle of amusement at the fancy picture his sister had called up. Most Baguette is the only man that could play the cornet in the township that I know of, and he is going to help Mrs. Buckle with Sam tonight. It was very weird and still at Ripple when Don had ridden all the way. The darkness dropped over the forest like a pail. It was cloudy tonight, and the young moon 
had no chance at all against the billowing masses of clouds that were piled along the horizon. It would rain before morning, so Sophie said if the weather broke, it might even be dull and stormy for a week or more, and she sighed, because she loved fine weather so much the best. Pam sighed too, and her face was a little white and drawn when she dropped the heavy bar of ironwood into the socket at the side of the door. Sophie had told her that the nearest house was three miles away, and she was trying to picture the situation brought up in London, taught from her childhood to understand that there were bristling dangers all around her. The solitude of Ripple seemed to put her almost outside the world. She argued that if there were no people, there would be no danger, and then was surprised because she was scared at the solitude. The dog had attached itself to her with a salvaging devotion. The creature accorded Sophie a bare tolerance, but there was a perfect worship in the gaze it turned on Pam, and she was tremendously flattered at its preference. It even wanted to go up to bed with her that night when soon after dawn had gone. They betook themselves to the upstairs room where they had intended to sleep. They humored the animal, feeling it would really be a comfort to have it upstairs with them, and they did not forget to bolt the door at the bottom of the stairs when they shut it. They were so tired that the night passed for both of them in dreamless slumber, and they did not rouse until the dog woke them up by whining to be let out. It was Pam who, with a dressing gown round her, it was Pam who, with a dressing gown round her, came down to open the house door that the creature might go free. She stood on the doorstep for a moment, sniffing the freshness and drinking in the beauty of the morning. There was a chill in the air which made her shiver, for the dressing ground was thin and the sun was not up yet. It was the magical beauty of the forest that was drawing her, the call of the wild that was in her blood. I love it. I love it. I would not go back to England even if I could, she whispered as she turned into the house again to go upstairs and dress. Then it suddenly occurred to her to wonder what would happen if her grandfather failed to return. It is silly to even think of such a thing. Of course he will come back, she murmured as she went upstairs, but she could not repress a little shiver for the possibility would haunt her, her despite her efforts to banish it. The morning chores were done, breakfast was out of the way, and Sophie was discussing with Pam what was the most necessary bit of work for them to start that morning when the doctor rode up and they both ran out to greet him. The dog growled languishly. There had been so many people at Ripple in the last two days that the creature plainly felt it was too much fag to growl at everyone and so was indifferent about the business. Although when an arrival was once a week or once a fortnight event, it had been ready to tear newcomers to pieces. Now is Mr. Buckle, demanded Pam, giving Sophie no time to do the asking, but shouting the question as she ran. He died at midnight, replied the doctor briefly, and Pam flung up her hands in horror and consternation at the news. Of course, she knew yesterday that the poor old man was very ill, but she had never thought that he was going to die. Oh, it was too dreadful. Suppose her grandfather really had hurt him, then the poor old man would not be able to come home now, but would have to be a wanderer of ways. 
hiding from the punishment which would await him if he were ever found. Father, you should not have told her so suddenly, cried Sophie, with an acute reproach in her tone as Pam turned and clung to her. So it seems, replied the doctor, as he slid from the horse and came to help the restoration of Pam. But there are some things that do not improve by keeping, and this is one of them. Mrs. Walsh, you have need of every atom of courage you possess. I think you are made of good stuff, and you have got to rise to their occasions somehow. I will if I can, whispered Pam, but she was as white to the lips as there was such dismay in her heart that she was ready to sink with the pain of it all. It is very well to tell her to be brave, but think of the shock for the poor girl. Why, I feel downright bad myself, and I am only an outsider. Poor Pam, whatever will become of her? Will she have to turn around and go back to England? Sophie was firing out a stream of questions, for she was tremendously excited. Nothing like this had ever come her way before, and she was a little thrown off her balance by it. I cannot go back to England. I have not money enough, and mother cannot afford to send me any either, said Pam, recovering herself a little. Then drawing away from Sophie, she stood erect, though she was a little white and trembling. I shall stay here and make the best of it, she declared. That is right, the doctor's voice had such a ring of approval in it that Pam began at once to feel better. Nothing is proved against Mr. Brevel, of course, the doctor went on. He might not even have been suspected of having hurt Sam Buckle, but for his accountable absence, as it is, people are disposed to think the very worst of him, and yet he may be as innocent as you or I. I believe he is. I cannot think that he would hurt anyone, murmured Pan, and the doctor shook his head, but whether in agreement or dissent did not appear. Will Pam have to live on here alone? Will she have to run the farm, demanded Sophie in a blaze of excitement. She was wondering whether the city girl would do alone in the wilderness with winter coming on. For a moment, the doctor looked from one girl to the other as if he was making up his mind and then spoke with a brisk decision. No, she certainly cannot live alone. It is not to be thought of. You will have to stay with her until some of her own people can come out to her or until she can find someone she likes better, that is, always supposing her grandfather makes no sign. I shall love to have Sophie with me, but I'm afraid it is more than I can manage any right now to expect, said Pam, striving to speak steadily. I am such an absolute stranger, and she has been so good to me. We have to be good to each other out here in the backwoods, or we should certainly get left every time there is trouble, the doctor replied. He went on in a lighter tone. You need not worry over much about keeping Sophie. She is going to be married in the spring, and she has mountains of sewing to do. At home, she will never get time for it. Here she may. Oh, she never told me, cried Pam, looking with new interest at Sophie, whose face was covered with blushes and a sight to see. Did she not? I thought girls always told such things, said Dr. Grinson with a glance of pride at his eldest daughter, Sophie, had always been his right hand ever since she had been old enough to do anything at all. It was a piece of real self-sacrifice to spare her to stay with Pam at Ripple, but the plight of the stranger girl was so serious that he did not hesitate for a moment, 
as to where his duty lay. He rode away in great hurry, as usual, and when he had gone, Pam, for a time, broke down and cried. Sophie, with rare wisdom, crept away and left her alone to have her cry out. A moaning wind crept through the trees and sighed away in the distance. Pam sobbed on until she had no more tears to shed. Then she gathered her courage to face that which lay before her. She realized that she was up against the hardest thing she had ever faced in her life, and she was going to meet it boldly if she could. Her courage might feel like water, but other people must not know it. For the sake of her grandfather, who had so mysteriously disappeared, she must stay on at Ripple and do her best. The thought of running a farm tickled her so much that her tears were dry and she was laughing when Sophie crept back to see how it was with her. Well, you are a queer girl, she exclaimed, and her opinion of Pam went up by leaps and bounds. Chapter 7 Searching Days passed. The police came and went. Indeed, they might be said to haunt Ripple at this time. The dog grew so used to the strange faces and visitors at all hours that it took no notice of them at all. It was tired, too. Morning, noon, and night, Pam was searching for some trace of the old man whom she had come so far to live with, and yet had never seen, and where she went, the dog went, too. It was a dead body she was looking for now, and she had trampled the fields until she knew the land literally foot by foot. Then she penetrated into the forest, going very warily at first, for she had all the city girl's dread of the unknown, and who could tell her what terrors might lurk unseen beneath the brambles and the undergrowth. She did not find anything. Sometimes the dog would stop suddenly and lift its head and howl in a manner calculated to make the warm blood in her veins turn cold, for she believed herself to be on the brink of a find. But always there was nothing. While Pam was away searching, Sophie sat in the house and sewed. She was to be married in the spring, as her father had said, and she had her own ideas as to the amount of plenishing it was proper to take with her to her husband. At home she was harassed by the hurry between her duty and her inclination. Here there was no duty to harass her, and she felt as if she was having the best holiday she had ever known for years. Every morning after the chores were done, she and Pam cleared the room, and when that was finished, Sophie sat down to her sewing, and Pam started out to search. The house was beginning to look differently already, and it had lost the odor of exceeding frostiness, which had stuck them both on the night of the surprise party. Then the inevitable happened, and Pam lost her way in the forest one day. She walked on and on, realizing that she was getting more hopelessly bewildered every minute. Suddenly she remembered the dog, and catching the creature round the neck, she told it all about her difficulty winding up by telling it in the most foreseeable language she possessed to take her home. Woof, woof, woof. The dog flung its head and howled in such fearful dismay fashion that Pam gave an involuntary cry. You must not make such an awful row. I simply cannot bear it, she exclaimed, seizing the creature around the neck and giving it a great hug. We are in trouble, both of us, but you must learn to keep yours to yourself a bit, my friend. This sort of thing is past bearing. Now take me home, dear, and make haste about it. 
or Sophie will certainly have a fit. The animal gave a short bark as if perfectly understanding what was required of it, then started off along a crisscross trail going at a business-like trot, but looking round every few minutes as if to make sure that Pam was following her all right. The trail turned suddenly through a belt of beechwood thick with foliage into a bare, desolate region, which made Pam cry out in amazement. As far as she could see, the forest had been burnt. Even the ground appeared to have been charred, and there was a hardy vestige of green to be seen anywhere. The mighty trunks had been a sport of the winter tempest, since being ravaged by fire, and here and there were blown into heaps of gigantic confusion. They lay in piles or bunched together in groups, while heaps of cinder and charred fragments lay in all directions. The dog went steadily on through this desolate region, and Pam saw that the creature was following a well-defined trail. Then she began to wonder where she would find herself by and by. When the guide turned short round into a living forest once more, and the trail grew broader and broader, and suddenly she was in a little clearing where there was a long, low, brown house in front of her and just beyond the shimmering waters of the creek. Oh, how pretty, she murmured to herself, for the autumn sunshine fell full on the water while a little wind was ruffling the surface, making it catch a thousand sparkles that seemed to light the woodland and the strip of brown field through which it ran. An elder woman came to the door of the house, seeing Pam and the dog, beckoned her to come nearer. Pam went at once, needing no second invitation, for she was very anxious to know where she was and how long it would take her to reach home again. But the dog was growling and growling, while a ridge of air bristled erect along its spine. There, there, mend your manners, can't you? Don't you see that the lady is a friend, cried Pam, catching the old strap which the dog wore around its neck by way of a collar, for she was afraid that it was going to fly at the woman who was smiling and of such a friendly welcome. Now say, ain't that Rex Purvel's dog? And I do believe you must be his granddaughter, my dear. I do take it kind that you should have come to see me so soon. Come in, come in. And don't take no notice of the dog growling, because men fall out is no reason why women should be at enmity, and it is glad I am to see you, my dear. Pam suddenly began to tremble, tried to speak, and could not. Then, giving herself a shake, grasped out, Are you Mrs. Buckle? Why, yes, my dear, of course. Didn't you know, and hadn't you come to see me? There was so much disappointment in the woman's face and a manner that Pam hesitated to soothe her. I would have come before if I had the faintest idea that you would care to see me, but I naturally supposed that I was the very last person you would want to have for a visitor. To her exceeding dismay, Pam found herself on the verge of tears. It was dreadful to think that she should have blundered into the presence of the woman who, of all others, she would have chosen to avoid. I should have come to Ripple. Myself to see you, said Mrs. Buckle, shaking hands with Pam in the friendliest fashion imaginable, and then leading her into the house, and literally forcing her to sit in a big cushioned chair, and stood between the window and the stove. But you see the trouble is, I haven't got my widow's bonnet made yet, and it would not be honoring to poor Sam's memory for me to go paying calls 
and a hat with a blue feather, which is all the outdoor wear I have at the present. I went to the funeral in Mrs. Rafti's bonnet, a dreadful shabby affair, as you may guess, for her man has been gone nearly two years, and she never was any good at taking care of things. She is not too clean either, and I did not fancy wearing her bonnet, and I tell you, Miss Johnson, the miller at the corner, was quite out of window capes, and that is the sort with the big teardrops, you know, so I had to wait until she had got a fresh lot in from St. John's. It was very kind of you to think of coming to see me, murmured Pam when Mrs. Buckle paused for a want of breath. I am very, very sorry for the trouble you had, but I cannot think that my grandfather, an old man himself, would have knocked Mr. Buckle about so cruelly. Ah, you never knew my poor Sam, cried Mrs. Buckle, shaking her head as she wiped away a tear to her husband's memory. He was the most aggravating man that ever was, and I ought to know, seeing that I bore with his infirmity for hard on twenty-nine years. And, my dear, if your grandfather didn't do it, poor man, why should his axe, with his name branded on the handle, have been found lying in the ground so close to the broken fence? Was it found there, breathed Pam in cold horror, and from that moment the iron of a deep humiliation and disgrace entered into her very soul. Why, yes, didn't they tell you? asked Mrs. Buckle. But there, I expect they kept it back just to spare your feelings. Poor child. The kindly woman came near as she spoke, and her workworm hand dropped in a consoling fashion onto Pam's arm. But you must not blame the poor old man too much, for doubtless he was angered past bearing. Everyone knew that he had a violent temper, and he could be deaf and blind to the consequences when once he began to lay on. It is quite well when people learn to restrain themselves when they are young, for they have come to years, they lose control over their passions. I wish your grandfather had stayed to face the music, though. I'm sure that the inquiry would have brought in that there were extenuating circumstances, and so he would have gotten off lighter. Now he will have to face the very worst, when they find him. Oh, I do not think they will find him alive. It is his dead body that I am looking for, said Pam, and her voice was sharp with pain. Mrs. Buckle shook her head. You do not know your grandfather, and so you think of him as a feeble old man. But he was not. He was a very strong and vigorous. I saw him once knock Sam down as clean as if he were bowling a ninepin over, and I did not pity Sam either for that time. At least I knew very well he deserved all he got. From my heart, I pity your grandfather now. It is cruel hard that a man at his time of life should have been a wanderer. Oh, it is dreadful, dreadful, wailed Pam, hiding her face in her hands. The trouble had been bearable when she thought of her grandfather as dead, for then he would at least have been beyond the reach of hunger and cold. But if he had done this terrible thing of beating a fellow man to death, and was forced by his crime to be a fugitive from justice, how the poor old man would suffer. She would never be at peace now, but would always be looking for him to come stealing back to his home for money, for food, and for shelter. Child, you must not take on like that, said Miss Buckle, whose own tears were falling, 
like rain, you have just got to be bright and brave and to keep your end up as best you can. It is hard lines for you to be pitchforked into a trouble of this sort, but just figure to yourself how much worse it would have been for the poor old man if you had not been at Ripple just now. The place would have been in the hands of strangers. There would have been no one to look after his interests or keep the place going. Now he will most likely come creeping back some stormy night this fall, for he will want money to help him get clear away from the parts where he is known. You must keep some handy for him when he comes. Have you got any? Only a few shillings, I mean dollars, replied Pam, who had constantly reminded herself of the difference in currency. I thought as much, muttered Mrs. Buckle, telling Pam to sit still a minute. She went away to the inner room once she returned a minute later to thrust a bundle of dirty-looking papers into the girl's hand. Take that, my dear. It is only twenty dollars, but it is all I have to spare, and it may make the difference for him between starvation and security, for he is a man that can do with very little from having lived alone so long. But I cannot take your money, yours of all people, to help my grandfather, protested Pam, in a voice of awe, and she looked up at the kindly old woman trying to thrust back the little bundle of paper money, but Mrs. Buckle was obdurate. You must take it, please, my dear, she insisted. It is right to spare myself what suffering I can, for I have had enough to bear. I feel it would be the last straw to my endurance if the police were to find your grandfather, and all that old trouble had to be racked up in court of justice. It is not likely I have many more years to live, and they might as well be peaceful years, but I should never know another happy hour if your grandfather were put in prison for wounding my husband. I have no doubt that poor Sam's aggravation ways were a sort of infirmity, like a hair lip or a crooked back, and I would rather leave the punishment of the man who did him to death in the hands of the Almighty God, so you will please take the money and say no more about it. Only you must keep it in a place where the poor old man can get it himself if he happens along when there is no one about, for he may break into his own house, don't you see, because he won't know how we feel about his escaping. The desk in his bedroom is locked, said Pam faintly. She could protest no more, and taking the roll of notes, she thrust it into the security in front of her blouse. Try if you have got a key that will open it, said Mrs. Buckle, who was plainly a person of resource. If not, perhaps I can pick it for you as soon as I get my bonnet, and can come to pay a call. Oh, it wouldn't be the first lock I had to pick in a good many. When a woman has a husband who keeps all sorts as my man kept me, she is apt to do things that won't bear daylight. But he is dead now, and his faults ain't going to be talked about except in the way of stopping other people from having to suffer for them. You are a dear good girl for coming to see me. It has done me a power of good to have you to talk to. I feel better than I have done since Sam was taken. It is very sweet of you to feel like this, Mrs. Buckle, and I thank you for myself and for my mother. But, oh, I wish I had some way of repaying you for your kindness to us. Pam's eyes were wet with tears, and she leaned forward and warmly kissed Mrs. Buckle's cheek. 
There is something that perhaps you may be able to do for me if you have a mind, said Mrs. Buckle slowly. Oh, tell me, please, what is it? And I will so gladly do it if it is in my power. Pam was thinking how she must in her own person expect what she could of her grandfather wrongdoing. She could not bring Sam back to life again, but she might be able to do some service for the widow. Mrs. Buckle hesitated. She was not a woman of fine feeling, and yet she halted to tell this nice girl with the straightforward, fearless gaze that the old man, her grandfather, was a thief. Yet there it was. Although she might soften it down, the ugly fact remained the same. Nervously, she cleared her throat, and a hot flush crept over her kindly old face as she burst into speech. Sam was found with his pockets cleared out, some money he had on him, I know, but whether it was much or little, I can't say, and of course I shan't ever know now. But what upsets me more about the loss of the money was that poor Sam's watch had been taken. A good watch it was, and it had belonged to my father, who gave it to Sam when he died. My word, but I did value that watch. Of course, I'm not saying that your grandfather took it for the sake of stealing from the man he'd hurt so badly. When he found that he knocked the sense out of Sam, he just took the money and the watch to make it look as if the whole thing were done by someone for the sake of stealing. If your grandfather comes creeping back some night and you see him, I want you to ask him to give you back the watch. Tell him from me that he can keep the money and welcome, for it is his sorely he will need it, poor man, if he has got to be a wanderer all through this bitter winter time that lies before us. I will tell him, Mrs. Buckle, I will be sure not to forget, answered Pam, her eyes shining with earnest. But oh, since you have told me of the robbery, I am quite sure that Grandfather did not do that. You see, my mother has told us so much about Grandfather and what an upright man he was, hard and difficult to live with, but straight as a die. I can understand that he might have quarreled with Mr. Buckle and, in the heat of anger, might have beaten and injured him, but I am not going to believe that Grandfather stole the money and the watch. Someone must have come along afterwards and done that. Oh, what a fearful business it is. You are right, my dear. It is a fearful thing. And no mistake about it, cried Mrs. Buckle, following Pam to the door. Then she exclaimed sharply, Why, whatever are you hanging around here for, Mose forget? And Pam saw the untimely figure of the man whom she had once taken for a tramp, leaning against the angle of the house. He was white and trembling, and she was sorry that Mrs. Buckle felt necessary to speak so harshly to him. I'm bad, the man said briefly. I was working in a creek lot when I took a queer, and I came up here to see if you had anything you could give me, something to stop the pain, and he pointed vaguely at his chest to indicate the seat of his trouble. Come straight in and sit down, cried the widow heartily. I wouldn't turn a sick dog from my door, and certainly I would not turn you away, seeing how you helped me when my husband lay dying, except it is colic that you've got, and I've a fine remedy for that, though it is a bit nasty. No, Miss Walsh, you need no trouble to stop, for I do just know that you are wanting to get away home. I've got Amanda Higgins here, if I want anyone. 
She is away down in the corner lot, picking berries, and I shall just whistle for her if I want her. Pam was glad to go. Mrs. Buckle had shown her the right trail to take, telling her that she could make no mistake, nor did she for crossing the creek on the log footbridge at the ford. She passed the fence which had been the cause of all the trouble between her grandfather and Sam Buckle, and was at once on their own land at Ripple. Mrs. Buckle's account of her grandfather's axe having been found close beside the injured man had been a great shock to Pam. She had refused to let herself believe that her grandfather would hurt anyone so badly and then disappear, and not a word had been said in her presence of the axe. But when Mrs. Buckle had spoken of the robbery, a gleam of comfort had stolen into the heart again. She was quite, quite sure that her grandfather would not steal money and a watch. Disagreeable he was, and so hard to live with that her mother had been glad to run away from him, but he was a bedrock honest. He owed no man anything, and would rather have lived on buckwheat porridge all the time than run up an account at the store for groceries, for which he could not pay. Perhaps he was entirely innocent of this thing, although it did look so black against him. But where was he hiding? And if no one had done nothing to be ashamed of, why was he hiding? These questions which she could not answer brought Pam back to her old theory of something having happened to him, and she reached the house at Ripple, thoroughly tired out with her search, but with courage unabated to go on again. She told Sophie of her visit to Mrs. Buckle, and how that kindly woman had given her money to supply her grandfather's needs if the poor fugitive should come back, and Sophie dropped her sewing and sat with parted lips staring at Pam as she listened to the extraordinary story. Just to think of it, why, Pam, Sam Buckle must have been a tyrant if his widow can feel so kindly to the man who is believed to have caught his death. If I ever thought all men were like that, I should change my mind about getting married, but I know that George is good and kind. People are not all alike, of course, said Pam, as she leaned back in the big chair and fanned herself with her hat, for the day was hot. I think that even the very disagreeable ones would not be so bad if they were properly handled. Take grandfather, for instance. I know he is hard to live with, but half of his disaster... Take grandfather, for instance. I know he was hard to live with, but half of his disagreeableness came because he was so upset at mother's wanting to marry father, who was not particularly hard-working, and, I am afraid, not too steady. Mother was wayward. She would have her own way, but, ah, how bitterly she has had to pay. Pam sighed at her visions of her childhood rose up before her eyes. Sophie nodded in perfect sympathy, but she asked no questions about those old, sad memories. Pam's past did not concern her, so why be curious about it? Her needle went in and out of the white seam with such soothing regularity, and the house in the forest was so quiet that presently Pam fell fast asleep, curled up in the big chair with the tired dog at her feet.